Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today we're going to talk about corporate espionage and uh, maybe kind of some things you can do about it. So as always, please follow us on LinkedIn and, and make sure you subscribe to make sure you always get the latest updates. Well, espionage sort of sounds like the thing of spies, and in a way it really is, but it goes beyond spy novels. What we find out is that information, whether it's government information, military information, or corporate, is still a fat, attractive, juicy target. And there are some entities and people who will, well, go outside the realm of the law to get access to it. So today I want to talk a little bit about Risk assessment in general, most of you will be review for most of you, but for those who are new to it, it might be a nice recover. Known bad actors, some other threat actors. We'll look at some of the targets of information. Uh, exfiltration, how they get out. Uh, and then some ideas about a cybersecurity model and even some of the government strategies for what they're doing about it. Well, let me start first with a, a reading from the book of definitions. Now, the FBI defines economic espionage as, quote, foreign power-sponsored or coordinated intelligence activity directed at the U.S. government or U.S. corporations, establishments, or persons designed to unlawfully or clandestinely influence sensitive economic policy decisions or to unlawfully obtain sensitive financial, trade, or economic policy information, proprietary economic information, or critical technologies. Now, if you're listening from outside the United States, you probably have your own government's definition of what represents economic espionage, and it's probably very close to that, except it's going to be tuned to your particular geographic area. So what we find then is that for the most part, economic espionage is often considered to be sponsored by foreign powers, at least from the FBI perspective. That doesn't mean that the company down the block is going to try to steal your secret cookie recipe, although that probably still represents some form of trade secret theft. That doesn't really fit into the realm of espionage. Remember, espionage is more in the realm of national or international type of activities. So I said we're going to talk a little bit about risk assessment. And Fundamentally, when we're discussing with senior executives and trying to help them understand what the problem is, in particular, let's say we're worried about cyber espionage, it's important that we have solid definitions of our terminology. I mean, what's a threat? What's a vulnerability? And then what's the difference? You know, I had asked that to an audience recently, and they said, what's a threat? Well, something that can hurt you. What's a vulnerability? Something that can hurt you. Okay, that sort of collapses on itself, but there is, of course, a difference. A threat is an actor, and I'll use that term loosely, and I'll, def I'll, I'll expand a little bit, that has the capability of causing harm to an asset, basically something you care about. A vulnerability is a characteristic of an asset that can be exploited by a threat. Hmm. So basically, if we think of a threat as being a, an actor, well, what kind of threats could there be? They could be human, they could be electronic, or they could be natural. So if we remember the original article that was written way back when, because we're coming up on RSA now, and I remember that Mandiant had published a paper on APT1, where they exposed Chinese PLA unit 61398 as being an advanced persistent threat. 
that's infiltrating, obtaining sensitive economic information, played really well. They got bought out shortly thereafter for a little over a billion dollars um, by FireEye. In any case, one of the types of threats can be, well, human. And these humans could be organized in government units or they could just be individual attackers. The second type of threat is going to be electronic. For example, ransomware that encrypts sensitive files, demands a payoff in Bitcoin, or today as we're seeing, the new variety of ransomware, which is not an attack on availability, it's an attack on confidentiality, and someone says, we're going to steal your stuff, and then you better pay us or we're going to publish it. Well, it doesn't have very far to go to get from there to espionage. You say, we're going to steal your stuff, and maybe you won't even know you stole it, and then it's gone forever. And then the last one, of course, is natural, like a hurricane. A hurricane will flood the data center, it'll isolate your staff. But although that's a threat, that's not really the type of thing we're going to be worrying about when it comes to espionage. And so espionage typically is going to be limited to human or electronic types of either actors or tool sets. Now, when we think about threats, the question is, can you control a threat? Well, here's a good question. Can you control a hurricane? I don't think so. So threats in general are entities you cannot control. You cannot control a disgruntled employee. Well, unless you knew about it. You cannot control malware. Once it's been installed, it's going to do whatever it's going to do. So threats exist. Whether or not you like it, they're going to be there. And that means if we're looking at our risk equation, we have to focus on something other than just reducing the threat to go ahead and work on it. Essentially, risk is measurable uncertainty. All right, that's my two-word definition of risk. If it's not measurable, then I can't come up with some meaningful way to describe it. And if it is not uncertain, meaning it's a definite event, there's no concern about there might be an alternate outcome. For example, I can't go to an insurance company and say, I don't think the sun's going to rise tomorrow, so I'm going to give you $1,000. But if it does rise, I want you to pay me a premium. I want you to pay me 1100 they're like, um, no. Now, they'll do it the other way around because that's a sucker bet, and they're very happy to take a sucker bet. But insurance companies are in the business of managing risk. In fact, that's kind of where risk goes, is you send it to an insurance company where you can say, hey, this is one of the ways I can deal with uncertainty. And they're going to trade off that uncertainty with whatever range it has to something certain for a premium. And if they know what they're doing, they're fine. So your risk, then, is your threat times the vulnerability, times the asset impact. Now, if we think about that particular equation, the threat times the vulnerability times the asset impact, we find out that the greater the threat, that is to say the stronger the hurricane, the more risk you're at. The more dedicated an attacker is to getting into you, the more desirous another country is of obtaining your secret information, the greater the threat. Same thing with the vulnerability. The more exposed your assets are to the attacker, the more patches that go uninstalled, the more connections to the outside world that you're not aware of, the more likelihood that your employees are going to pick up a USB drive and, well, plug it in because, hey, this looks interesting because you haven't trained them effectively. Those are all vulnerabilities. And then your asset impact is important. So the analogy I like to think about to break these turns out is let's imagine you've got an office building downtown. You've got this beautiful glass sculpture in the lobby, and it's a work of art, and let's say it's valued at a million dollars. Well, you read in the morning paper, 
there's a madman running around with a baseball bat, and he's whacking pieces of art around the city. Well, is there a risk? Well, let's think about it. What's the threat? The guy walking around with the baseball bat. What's the vulnerability? That your beautiful glass work of art is in the lobby of the building, and there's no way to control access to it, at least during business hours. And, of course, what's the asset impact? Baseball bat meets glass piece of art, not a damage. And so, therefore, you have a high level of risk. So let's talk about those three different elements. Can you eliminate the threat? Well, maybe, but if you find out in the next morning you read, crazy person with baseball bat arrested and put away for 20 years, well, then the threat's gone away, at which point your risk has gone away, and you can probably just enjoy your statue. The vulnerability, you can say, hey, let's move it back out of the lobby in some place where it's controlled access, or maybe it's behind a shield or bulletproof glass or something like that. Okay, now we've reduced the vulnerability because now the attacker, the threat, can't reach the asset. Or we could impact the asset by saying, hey, let's trade out our glass sculpture for well, a titanium sculpture. It may be worth a million dollars, but now you just leave it in the lobby. Somebody comes in with a wooden baseball bat and beats that on, on a titanium sculpture. That's a TikTok moment, right? He's not going to do any damage. So what you see then is in each case, you can manage your risk and by reducing one of those three elements. But practically speaking, we don't have a lot of control over the threat, and we really can't swap out one asset for another or reduce the amount of damage it could be. So we just have to say we'll focus on the vulnerability. Now we can go ahead and reduce our risk with controls. There's three basic types of controls. A technical control, which affects computer systems. You can implement that with software or hardware. Administrative controls affects people and the organization. And this is how we implement that with policies and procedures. And there's a third type of control, and that's a physical control. That's affecting your environment and your devices. And then you can go ahead and implement that with equipment and add-ons and things like that. So as a result of the risk equation of the threat times the vulnerability times the asset impact, the goal is we want to reduce our risk, and most of the time we're going to be focused on reducing our vulnerability. Now, there's four basic ways of dealing with risk. I can accept it. Yeah, I can live with that. You might say, hey, that's an acceptable risk. Every day that you get in the car and drive, you're accepting a certain amount of risk. Yes, there are fatal accidents. No, I've never been in one. I don't want to be in one. But every time I get in the car, there is some possibility that that could happen. So I reduce my risk. I wear my seatbelt. I've got a car with anti-lock brakes. It's got airbags. And I drive carefully and pay attention. And I, I do a lot of things to avoid the risk. And most of you probably do that. But you accept the risk, you go do it. As we mentioned earlier, you could assign the risk. You buy insurance. Let somebody else share in that. Okay, fine. As I said, a fixed amount of premium is equivalent to accepting the uncertainty of a certain amount of risk. Now, if you have enough empirical data, you know that you can build out the equation such that you really can't lose money with insurance. Warren Buffett bought Geico for that very same reason. You can't lose if you do it right. Now, because you have millions of data points and all these different entities, the odds of a lot of things going wrong all at once are sort of, well, astronomical. Now, if you had something major like a war or a zombie apocalypse, well, you put that in exclusion. And as some companies have found out, a once-a-century pandemic should probably be in the exclusion list because that could wipe out the insurance company if you got to pay on everyone. 
the whole idea is you only pay on a fraction. And if you have the really good numbers, then when you assign the risk, you basically allocate out a certain amount of that within a probability, couple, two, three sigma, and then you, the rest of it becomes your premium. Most years you make money, some years you lose, but in general, you're in the black. You could avoid the risk. Number three, just stop the behavior entirely. Let's just not do this. Or number four, what we often do in cybersecurity is mitigate the risk. We can't go ahead as we're going. We don't want to go ahead and say, hey, this is good enough, or I can stop doing business. So we apply countermeasures and things such as that. And effective countermeasures are going to drive down our risk. Okay, so that's the basis. Hopefully you stuck with me because you probably want to hear more about the espionage and review on risk. But hopefully there's some ideas there that you can use to explain those terms to management to better communicate to them the actions that they can take. Now, how bad is it? The annual cost to U.S. economy of counterfeit goods, pirated software, and the theft of trade secrets, according to the FBI, is somewhere between $225 billion and $600 billion. Now, it's a pretty wide range. How do we, why do we, why so big? Well, because we don't always know. Stuff gets stolen and it's not like they leave a little business card behind saying, yeah, yeah, I stole your stuff. And the interesting thing about information theft, particularly in the cyber world, is that unlike a document where somebody steals it and it's gone, you can tell, hey, it's missing or money, it's missing with information, it's copied. And your original may be intact, but somebody else is doing something with it. Now, one of the major organizations, entities, nation states, let's just call it for what it is, that is active in cyber espionage is the People's Republic of China. I'm not picking on them. I'm just calling out facts. In the U.S., we have a market economy. It's generally accessible. We have an independent judiciary, our separation of powers. We have laws protecting intellectual property. And we don't have government-sponsored economic espionage. Now, for those who are into conspiracy theories, let me just ask you a question. Back when Ed Snowden released all that information a few years back, and we're saying, oh, I can't believe about this or that or the other thing, there was nothing in there that said the CIA is collecting information from Airbus and giving it to Boeing, or the FBI is stealing information from Daimler and giving it to Ford. Okay, it, it's not how we work. Yet, for example, in China which has a state-run economy with a very restricted market, a lot of their development is done by, well, theft and replication and commercialization. You build a factory in China, and quite honestly, you might have two or three others built on the other side of the hill that are making the same thing, but not for you. And that's okay over there. That's the kind of risk that you take. Uh, the judiciary is subordinated to the government, and you don't get equal protection of intellectual property. And of course, there is government-sponsored economic espionage. I'm not making value judgments here. I'm just simply describing that it's an unequal playing field. And we can't go out there and simply say, well, we're going to play by these such and such rules, and we expect everybody else to do so too. It doesn't work that way. So the information that entities go after are the assets, and typically the list is as varied as there are types of corporations. It could be manufacturing know-how. It could be the processes, the formulas that go into various chemicals or Pharmaceuticals, <laughs> patentable research. Now, some of these shopping lists that economic espionage actors are looking for are public. They're defined publicly. They're published. We know what they're after, and they still get it. If you Google the concept of made in China 2025, 
This came out of one of the five-year plans from China, I believe it was a 2015 plan, and China publishes every five years their five-year plan. And the items that were on their shopping list for Made in China 2025 include new generation information technology. Hey, that's kind of what we do. Advanced numerical control machine tools and robotics. Hmm, you think it'd be helpful in automating a factory for building, I don't know, automobiles? Aerospace technology, including aircraft engines and airborne equipment. Biopharmaceuticals. This is for 2015, all right, long before we face COVID. High-performance medical equipment, electrical equipment, farming machines, railway equipment, energy saving and new energy vehicles, and ocean engineering. And there's going to be new ones in the future. And so what we find out then is that nation states put together a shopping list, and they say, this is what we're going to go after. In some cases, you can innovate and you can build it yourself. Other cases, you just go, well, help yourself to something else because it's an uneven playing field. If you take a look at who are the four largest national entities that perform espionage against U.S. organizations, is going to be the People's Republic of China, the Russian Federation, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, or is better known as North Korea, and the Republic of Iran. So those top four, the big four, if you will, are the entities, the governments that are basically saying, hey, let's go help ourselves to American know-how. Now, we say we don't want to let you do it, but they like try and stop us. For the most part, their operators, unless they're physically in the country, are outside of the reach of U.S. law enforcement. And so although, if you remember a few years back, after the APT1 paper came out that was published by Mandiant, then the FBI released on their list, I think it was five Chinese nationals that are saying wanted for economic espionage, property theft, etc. Now, one of these guys was in uniform, and I'm thinking, I don't know, if I were that Chinese officer in uniform, that would go in my cubicle. It's like, look at this one. The Americans got me an FBI poster. If I'm never going to go to America, why do I care? And we're not going to go over and pick somebody up there. But it was a way to communicate back that, hey, we know you're doing it. We know who's doing it. <laughs> well, how about instead of like saying we know who did it, how about we just like stop them from doing it? Well, that's our challenge. One of the biggest challenges we face is the advanced persistent threat or APT. It's almost become a marketing term. But advanced means they're often funded by state actors and they have deep resources. They're not going to give up because they ran out of venture capital. They're persistent, meaning they're not opportunistic. They're going to remain fixated on a target for months until they are successful. Essentially, the people in an APT are working shift work. You punch in the clock, morning, Ralph, morning, Sam, come in there, do your job. And if you get something great, if not, at the end of the eight hours, you go home, you know, help your kids with your homework and things like that and get ready for the next day. And of course, we consider them a threat because they have capability and intent that are not in your best interest. But hey, let's be honest, the United States does have capabilities that were used against other nation states. And so to a large extent, an APT is in the eyes of the beholder. What we consider an APT may be a normal government activity, and what others consider to be an APT might be another arm of our government. Just the way it is, it's how the world works. Now, when we're concerned about people stealing stuff, one of the things that there is, we have is the trade secret law. It's Title 18, U.S. Code, paragraphs 1831 to 37. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but I'm just going to paraphrase it in about one sentence. 
Whoever intending or knowing that the offense will benefit any foreign government, foreign instrumentality, or foreign agent knowingly steals, carries away, copies, conceals, duplicates, photographs, downloads, alters, transmits, mails, receives, buys, possesses, blah, 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 a trade secret shall be fined not more than $5 million or imprisoned not more than 15 years or both. And if it's an organization like a company, they can double that, like $10 million. Well, if you're in a billion-dollar theft industry, and what's five mil? It's round-off error. However, if you're an individual, 15 years of your life is a big chunk. So there is encoded in Title 18 laws that say anybody working for a foreign government that's benefiting a foreign government or foreign agent, and they knowingly do this stuff. So that means an accomplice, somebody gets duped into that, which means one of the concerns is, is that a lot of times what we find are inside agents, people who get lured into economic espionage because they're lonely. Or there's somebody has promised them friendship or freedom or money or power or romance or something like that. And people fall for this stuff. And otherwise loyal company employees, loyal citizens get induced into violating the law and helping out other countries because they have been able to been taken advantage of due to personality flaws or weaknesses or other events in their lives. Another good reason you should know your people well. Now, if you look at an outside threat like a nation-state actor, organized crime, malicious hackers, unethical competitors, ex-employees, upset business partners, uh, a website with dancing bears with active content, those are outside-type threats. Now, the first ones, nation-state actors, potentially organized crime, and maybe unethical foreign competitors all fit within that economic espionage realm. The rest, probably going after your trade secrets. But on the inside, you could have a disgruntled employee or a clumsy janitor that could be a threat. I unplug something or throw something out that shouldn't be tossed. A careless sysadmin leaves something unprotected. A curious voyeur looking around, poking around at files and going places they shouldn't. Maybe making copies of things from a secure part of the network to an unsecure part so they can play with it later. Or somebody leaving to start their own company or leaving to work with the competition. Or somebody who clicks on dancing bears that were on that website. I mean, the list goes on and on. And as a result, what we have to wonder is that what causes some organizations to have people that go bad? In general, you don't hire an employee with the intent that they're going to go bad on you, and people, unless they're already kind of predisposed to being a spy or an implant, they don't hire on to a company saying, you know, I think I'm going to get disgruntled in a few years, and I'm going to go ahead and exact some revenge. Most people, the vast, vast majority, take on a job and expect to do well. But I suggest that the corporate culture is a predictor of future compromise. Confucius had said, a fish rots from the head. And that means that ethical lapses at the top can greenlight bad behavior throughout the ranks. Now, espionage can sometimes be revenge by disgruntled employees. And intelligence agencies know that. So they'll take advantage of that, looking for signs of disgruntledness, etc., to go ahead and say, maybe we could go ahead and help you. We could get you what you deserve. Because this evil, bad company has treated you so poorly. Of course, not just companies as well. It could extend into the government, but you get the point. But yet, when we look at these internal threat actors, 95% of breached records came from only three industries, government, retail, and technology. Well, government and technology are, I think, core toward being able to have an international competitive basis. Sure, retail is a big deal, but... Given a choice between protecting something like a joint strike finder design 
and maybe the design for the next iPhone. I don't know, from a national importance perspective, I would think that Joint Strike Fighter probably is a little bit higher in priority. And then, according to the Cyber and Solutions study they did, 95% of cybersecurity breaches are due to human error. Well, that's <clears throat> the obvious answer. Eliminate all humans. No, there is no alternative to humans. We've got to have people in there. If we take a closer look at the inside threat, found information from the Secret Service. Secret Service publications says 69% of attacks were due to access control issues. They exceeded the access required for the job, or the accesses followed termination or reassignment. Someone was already moved on, and they could still get in. Or they used another employee's account or computer because sufficient technical controls were not in place. 42% of the insider threats used someone else's account. 89% modified or deleted the information and yet, only 9% communicated that threat to the target. One of the things I remember when I was in the military, we used to have next to every telephone, they had an outside line, a bomb threat checklist. And the idea was if someone called up and they said, well, hey, there's a bomb, then you were supposed to go down and ask questions in the order in which it's most likely to get information, like where is the bomb? What time is it going to go off? Uh, you know, what's, what's it armed with? And then if the person's still talking, why are you doing this? What would you like to account? And at the very bottom of the list, like, what's your name, what's your phone number, and what's your address? I don't think anybody ever got to the bottom of that list, but the point was is that you kind of expected that somebody was going to be communicating a threat. In this particular case, for insider theft, 9% did so. Continuing on with the Secret Service stats, 90% of the insiders were current employees. 85% in authorized access at the time of attack, and over three quarters had minimal supervision, meaning nobody's looking at them and their activities. This is not spontaneous. 88% of these were premeditated. They had developed plans, and 92% of those preps didn't even affect daily operations, meaning it's just going to blend right in. And the vast majority, over 80%, didn't even think about their positive negative consequences of actions. Usually, we would know when somebody isn't thinking about their consequences of their actions because you hear the phrase, hey, hold my beer, watch this. Well, similar sort of thing here. These are not going to be ideas that are necessarily good in the long run, particularly for people who get caught. But at the time, it seemed like a good idea. But but, but, but we're, we're compliant, right? We comply with FISMA, the Federal Information Security Management Act, uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, if we're publicly traded. The Payment Card Industry Data Security Standard, PCI DSS, or Healthcare HIPAA, or HITECH, or the NERC, SIP, and on and on and on. The problem with compliance is that fully compliant systems get hacked every day. In my opinion, compliance is a minimum standard. It's a C-. minus, And security is not a pass-fail thing. It's ongoing effort that is required. You're never, ever finished. But compliance is important. It makes the legal department happy. It provides a starting point. And it can also keep you in business because if you fail to meet compliance, you might lose your tickets, you might lose your ability to process credit cards or to hold a license or something like that. So what can we do about this stuff? Well, there are some tools available to corporations as well also to the government, but one of the big ones that I think we should mostly be familiar with now is the critical security controls. In May of 2021, critical security control version 8.0 came out. Now, it used to be the 20 critical security controls. And before that was called the consensus audit guidelines. Well, they dropped the 20 a couple of years ago because they were thinking of changing the number. And now there's just 18 of them. They are rank ordered in terms of priority. 
I'm not going to read the 18 to you. You can certainly look them up. You may even know them. But the first couple, inventory and control of enterprise assets and software assets, hardware and software. If you can't know what's in your enterprise, how are you going to defend it? Yeah, that makes really good sense. And then we get into secure configuration, access control, etc. But what's interesting is 18 of 18 in the priority listing is penetration testing. Sorry, red teams, doesn't mean you're last. It doesn't diminish the value of pen tests. But what it does suggest is that the time to do a pen test is after you've already tried to do the first 17. With compliance requirements, hey, we got to meet the PCI DSS. Ah, oh, we got to do a pen test. So every year we get a pen test. Well, they find stuff. I'm, every pen test team I've always worked on, I've worked on, we've always got stuff. With one exception, and that was uh, Amazon Cloud that was set up really, really well. They passed. They, they won. But every other time we got something. But the thing is, the pen test is not designed to go ahead and find problems for you. The pen test is designed to show you where your defenses weren't fully implemented. So you don't start with the pen test, you end with one. Okay, enough of that, because pen tests have value, but really their value is proving that the work you've done has been done correctly. Now, some of the design principles behind the critical security controls are the offense informs the defense, meaning you study the attacker's behavior, and then you find ways to stop it. We focus on critical actions and then prioritize the most important, as I alluded to before. And what the important thing is, they say everything is feasible and measurable, we, meaning it's a practical, you can do it, it's feasible. They're not saying go out and buy something for $100 million. And by measurable, there's no ambiguous language in there. You can meet this requirement. You can track your progress. And lastly, one of their design principles is alignment to maintain what they call, quote, peaceful coexistence with other governance structures, meaning that you're not going to have an issue with respect to if I do it for the CSC, it's going to disable it over here for ISO 27001, for example. As we look at an attack as an adversary goes from reconnaissance to getting into a system to maintaining persistence to running an exploit in XFIL, we can map our critical controls through these different stages and then when we're looking at the issue of preventing corporate espionage, we can decide, are we kind of in the identify, protect, detect, respond, recover phase? That's sort of the defense side. The offense side, the recon, penetration, persistence, and exploit are the offense side. And what we want to be able to do is make it much more difficult for an attacker to get in. Well, some of the controls you can do, control three, data protection. In this particular case, Job requirements should drive the access, meaning it's not a personal insult to reduce somebody's privilege access. Sure, we've got people who've been around for a long time. I need to have the root keys to the kingdom because I've been here 22 years. Well, that's great, but you don't need root all the time. And as a result, it's sometimes an emotional issue where someone says, what, you don't trust me? Well, we do trust you. The point is this. If your credentials get lost or stolen and something bad happens, because you've got root access, we're going to have to fire you and maybe turn you over to law enforcement, and you're going to have a big legal bill. We don't want that. We love you. We want you to stick around. So how about you only carry what you need? Essentially, what we want to do is make sure that with our data protection, that we can identify and respond to a particular problem. We can detect and respond faster than the attacker can get the information out. Control four is secure configuration of enterprise assets and software. 
Typically, default configurations are rarely, if ever, secure. Why? Because when the vendor sells you something, you plug it in, you want it to work. If it didn't work because you had to RTFM and read the fine manual, people would send it back. They want usability. Well, the thing is that convenience is the enemy of security. I think that might have been one of Bruce's, Bruce Schneider's quotes. But I agree with that. We want it to be convenient. And even secure configurations that we set up decay over time, either because people tweak them, they make little changes, or new vulnerabilities are discovered that require new patches and updates. And of course, we want to limit admin privileges because for the most part, that's where your problem is. Somebody with guest access can't do a lot of damage to your enterprise. If they're a global administrator in your Azure environment, yeah, they could do a lot. Control 5 account management. Because the misuse of admin privileges is the primary method for attackers to spread through the enterprise. It could either come in through a file attached in an email or someone could guess to crack an admin password. And if you're using something like Mimikatz, which is a great little tool that Benjamin Delpy had invented and uh, then had to cough up the soft source code when someone kind of accosted him, you know, big scary people said, you will give me this code. Well, he, yeah, he gave it to him and then he said, all right, I'm going to publish it for the whole world. And it's been a favorite of pen testers. If you've ever heard of Mimikast, you're not sure what it does. It basically allows you to read in memory and pull out passwords that have been used. For example, an admin password. Well, one of the vulnerabilities that we try to get people not to do is use the same local admin password on every machine. It's one of my requirements that I have in my environments. You cannot reuse an admin password. But it's extra. Yes, it is extra work. But organizations that get owned through lateral movement is because somebody gets into a machine toehold, they're able to execute a tool like Mimikatz. Hey, there's the admin password. It works on all the other machines. You've got lateral movement. Boom, you're in. If you're limited to one machine with that, well, that restricts the amount of damage that could be done. And the last critical control I'm going to highlight is number 14, security awareness and skills training. It's a lot easier for an attacker to entice the user to click on something or open an attachment than it is to try to physically penetrate an organization, all right? Or find a new network exploit or find a new zero day. Just get someone to click on something or install it because the average user is often trusting and helpful. And as a result, we want to sensitize our people to social engineering and the concerns about phishing tactics and techniques and things like that. And as a result, we can avoid a lot of these problems. Now, insiders circumvent controls because they're going to open an attachment or download a harmful file or maybe run their browser, which is not patched, or plugins where they're vulnerable to drive-by downloads or clicking on things like a dancing bear to see what it does. It's a whole lot worse if you're running as admin. See, the dangerous behavior, the risk behavior, is end users having admin privileges. No. And users should never have admin privileges, but I need to install Then we'll do them one at a time. Users having shared accounts, administrators with shared accounts, heaven forbid, direct access to super user accounts, or did you know they got some applications install their own accounts, right? I found going through an audit on an Azure domain, a service principal account that was in there as a global administrator. And I have no idea who is, what is this thing? Did a little bit of research, checked around, uh, got some uh, indications that there might be some threat issues there. I basically suspended the account, then eventually deleted it. No harm to the environment. But somehow, somewhere, that global administrator service principal account got added to the enterprise. I had no idea where it went through. And so we want to make sure we know what's in there. The idea of least privilege is a big deal. NIST Special Publication 800-TAC-27. 
which is the Engineering Principles for Information Technology Security, or your baseline, says the concept of limiting access or least privilege is simply to provide no more authorization than necessary to perform required functions, meaning if you're doing it, you can still get 100% of your work done. And consideration should be given to implementing role-based access control for various aspects of system use, not only administration. See, we think of RBAC as something like for admins and chopping things up. And there are tools like Beyond Trust or whatever that allow you to kind of segment out the administrative control or root access. But it's not just for administration. In general, we don't want people to go ahead and have more controls than they need because bad things could happen. Why take the risk? Again, it's an unnecessary risk. From an exfil perspective, we've probably heard of DLP or data loss prevention. And in the early days, it was just kind of known as like a dirty word search. You'd look for key phrases. If you had a particular project uh, that was, uh, I don't know, Project Green Dynamo, and then you'd look for those words in any document that's transitioning through the email or maybe a file attachment going back and forth. And if you happen to see that particular phrase, and that was a restricted indicator that something is going on, then you'd pull that file aside or the email and you'd figure out what's going on. Maybe it's an employee sending their emails, forwarding them to their Yahoo account because they're dedicated and they want to work over a holiday or something. Well, the problem is, is that this type of DLP is not going to catch encrypted information concealed by an attacker. So back in August 2021, we did an episode with Kevin Fiscus. And Kevin, I remember, had done a talk a few years ago called DLP Fail, and about 15 different ways to avoid data loss prevention. Essentially, DLP, in my opinion, is going to work great for catching inadvertent disclosures. But if somebody really wants to get around it, yeah, they can do so pretty easily. Now, you can hide in plain sight because a lot of organizations don't have robust classification and labeling. Back when I was in the military, I remember that if you had a classified document, you literally had to label every paragraph, little paren, u, paren, if it's on class, c for confidential, s for secret, and so on. And the idea being is that any particular document, you could take a look at it, you know exactly what the classified stuff is and, well, what isn't. And so then they had the issue of redaction. If somebody did a FOIA, they could go ahead and say, you can see the unclassed stuff, but not the confidential stuff. Okay. But then again, for exfil, how about just walk out the door? Isn't that what Ed Snowden did? I mean, he used laptops. How do you not notice somebody walking out with a bag of laptops? Well, today, would anybody notice like a one terabyte USB? And that's just physically transporting it. That's nothing to say anything about electronically moving it. Now, the NIST cybersecurity model was designed originally for critical infrastructures, and it has the five functions of identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. And we identify the things that are vulnerable. We protect to limit the impact of the threat. We detect some event in a timely manner, respond to minimize that impact, and then recover to restore our services and maintain some resilience. And these types of approaches can be adapted to counter pretty much any types of threat scenario. If you go to OWASP.org, you'll find the Threat and Safeguard Matrix, or TASM. And you'll recognize it when you see a Tasmanian devil wearing a cape. It's pretty clever. And what it is, is it's the NIST cybersecurity framework, identify, protect, detect, respond, recover, going left to right, with threats along the vertical axis, allowing you to define for each particular threat that you're worried about, what could we do about it? What could we do at the identify level, at the protect level, the detect, the respond, and the recover? It's a wonderful thing. We'll probably do an episode on that a little bit later to give you some more detail. If you happen to work in the defense industrial base, or known as the DIB, 
then something you've probably heard of over the last year, year and a half or so, is a Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, or CMMC program. And this is a deliberate program that was set up to go ahead and help protect against, well, economic espionage. It's applicable to all defense contractors, and the cybersecurity maturity is based on the risk rating of that DOD contract. Because we recognize there's a lot of targets that could be gone for. The federal contract information, which is basically the details of a contract, is called FCI. There's controlled unclassified information, or CUI, which is what they used to call FOUO, or um, they had three or four other abbreviations. We still see FOUO a lot, but you're not supposed to use that. You're supposed to use CUI. There's covered defense information for the contractor, the covered technical information for military and space, uh, any cost or schedules or performance. All these things are considered like pillars of defense acquisition. Now, when they first came out with a CMMC model, there were five different levels, uh, culminating with 171 controls, APT protection. You had to have everything in the NIST Special Publication 800 plus 811 Bravo, plus and plus, and it was just huge. Then you had to have a, people that would go ahead and inspect that and validate that. And I went ahead and I spent the money personally to train myself and another member of my team to get the CMMC certification. And if you go to cmmcab.org, you can find out a list of the entire marketplace of organizations that can help you with this. And it seemed to make pretty good sense. At level one, basic cyber hygiene would cover the federal contracting information. So level one, let's say I'm making, um, I don't know, widgets for the Defense Department. There's nothing classified about it. There's nothing military about it. I'm basically, I'm, I'm selling pens or something like that. But yet there's still federal contact data in there and that federal contract data should be supported and protected. At level three, I got to have good cyber hygiene. I've managed it. And by the time I get to level five, see four and five, they didn't even get around to defining. They just talked about, we're going to write this stuff. It's going to be optimized. The rollout was 15 prime contracts in fiscal year 21. And then 1,500 contractors are 0.5% of the defense supply chain by, by about now. And then all the DOD contracts would contain CMC requirements starting in FY26. But wait, <laughs> hold the press. When they came out with the new version in November 2021, they collapsed the five levels down to three. And the biggest thing from my perspective is they moved it away from being externally inspected and validated to, well, self-assessment. The problem, in my opinion, of a self-assessment or self-attestation, it's great that it reduces complexity and the cost, but it's almost like trying to cheat on your self-attestment. It's like cheating on your taxes. I mean, the tendency is going to be the likelihood of being caught and even punished. And so the concern then is that how effective is that going to be? So they're establishing new rules, but we'll have to see how that works. So finally, what can you do as an organization to counteract espionage? Well, I suggest there's five steps so you can make your company more cyber secure. And this comes from the CMMC website. Educate people on cyber threats because most incidents start because of error. Implement access controls because you want to limit information systems to authorize users. We talked about that with the critical security controls. Authenticate users. Use multi-factor authentication whenever you can. I'm a big believer in that. Monitor your physical space. Escort your visitors. Maintain audit logs and manage physical devices. You stick a USB device in one of my laptops, not only does it disable the port, but I get an alert. And then you update your security protections to download the latest security patches from a trusted source. Now for our response strategies, what could we do? 
One is we could, well, buy insurance. We're basically assigning the risk to somebody else. But the concern that I have about cyber insurance, we think it's all the rage, but it's only going to provide for the orderly demise of your organization. You're going to be able to essentially pay your bills while you come back up to speed. But during the time that you've been down for weeks or months recovering, your customers had to go someplace else to get whatever it was that you provided. When you come back and said, hey, we're up and running again, all ready to go. They're going to like, well, sorry, G-Mark, uh, you know, we needed what you provided. And although you were the best, we had to sign a contract with somebody else. And there's still nine months to go on it. So why don't you call us back next year? And you find out that you're not going to go bankrupt. You just file a certificate of dissolution because you can pay your bills. But insurance is no substitute for keeping the company going. Some organizations will pre-purchase cryptocurrency. Hey, you never know when you need Bitcoin. Although <laughs> lately, that's been a bad idea to pre-purchase Bitcoin. It's in a free fall. But by the time you hear this episode, it might be back up again. But don't forget about OFAC. All right. The Office of Foreign Asset Control will find out that Treasury Department lists a whole bunch of entities that it's illegal to send money to. And if they're running that uh, ransomware operation and you pay the ransom, you might have potentially violated that law and then you're in trouble there. You want to have layered defenses with rapid response. Essentially, we want to get inside the attacker's observe, orient, decide and act or OODA loop to be successful. And then you want to educate your workforce by understanding what the attacker tactics are, the techniques or procedures. Watch for attempts by external entities and coworkers. Help your people go through drills and things such as that. Practice that response. Because the external threat's more prevalent, but your insider threat is more damaging. Because insider attacks start inside the perimeter. I had a button that I found at a Disney shop years ago in Orlando. I, I've got it in a drawer somewhere. I keep trying to find it. I know, I know I've got it because I find it every couple of years and I put it away. It says disgruntled employee of the month. It's fun to wear that just kind of, kind of shake people up a little bit. But how do you know when somebody goes from gruntled to disgruntled, right? You know, they, they still have the same access. They still have the same rights and controls and privileges. Just their motivations have changed, which means there are human factors in preventing espionage. One of them is to know your people. Look for early signs of dissatisfaction or inappropriate activity. Ed Snowden exhibited several warning signs prior to his exit, but nobody acted on them effectively. And then establish strong controls and monitor consistently. And if you're able to do so, you can reduce your breaches and espionage in your private sector, and I think you'll do a whole lot better. Well, I hope you found this episode valuable and entertaining. And thank you for listening to CISO Tradecraft. And as always, if you like the show, share it with somebody else. Uh, maybe there's somebody who could benefit from it as much as you can. Give us a like on whatever podcast you're listening to. Uh, follow us on LinkedIn. And we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Until the next time, stay safe.